Pedro. Hi, Noor. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm really happy to have you、um, on the call today. I am so happy to be here. Thanks so much. Now it's great. We've interacted a bit on Twitter, but this is the first time、uh, we're speaking on the phone. So it's it's nice to hear your voice. Yeah, I like this format. It's it's kind of cool. It feels retro. A phone call. <laughs> yes, it is pretty retro. But、uh, to be fair, I've heard your voice before because I've caught your segments on、uh, Tucker several times, which I thought were great. You do a great job at explaining the、uh, current issues that we are facing in in the country in the U.S. Thank you. I spend hours agonizing over what I'm going to say every time I go on that show because you never know when your last segment, when which is your last segment, and more importantly, you have an, a huge audience, right? And so you have to make the best of it. So yeah, whenever I go on Tucker, you're seeing me at my unusual best. Well, you'll definitely feel sympathy for me then, because my first television appearance live was actually on Tucker. Yeah, I. I think I could say mine was as well. I had done the closest thing I had done to TV before that was Michelle Malkin's live stream, and I had actually been super reluctant to do television because I don't like being in front of cameras and I don't like to do public speaking. But basically, I got a call from Tucker one day. He got my number somehow, and he just asked me to be on a show, and I wasn't going to say no. So I. Uh, you can actually kind of see the progression of my Tucker hits being kind of bad, and, and you can tell that I'm extremely uncomfortable to the present day, where I'm much less tense now. And but yeah, I mean, I I would not have done TV if it was not Tucker, you know, telling me to go on a show. No, same here.、Uh, he has that effect. But if it can reassure you, you've done a terrific job every time I've seen you on, and I'm impressed at how you manage to cram in so much information in a very clear and concise way in such a short amount of time and under so much pressure. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very nice of you. No, and one of the things that I really appreciate with your work is that you are. One of the few political commentators who addresses the real issue,、uh, i.e., that it's not you know left versus right, a Democrat versus Republican.、Uh, here we are really dealing with a uniparty, which is beholden to the people who are actually above them and corporate interests. And you've really nailed that on you know those segments that I've seen, and also on Twitter, your commentaries are very astute, if I may say. Thank you. Yeah, I think that this is this is the issue. It's not a bit that I'm playing. I'm not just, you know, role playing as the angry pundit to criticize the GOP for the sake of criticizing the GOP. My position is that whatever the left does, if you want to call it the left, whatever the Democratic Party does, all of that only happens because there is no real opposition, and in many cases, the the so-called right and the Republican Party actually help their supposed opponents, right? And I think a, a perfect example of this that's playing out right now. Is the fact that Republicans are, on the one hand, blasting Joe Biden for triggering a an immigration crisis, for deliberately, you could say, losing control of the, of the southern border, and on the other hand, they're now pushing amnesty for tens of millions of people that are here illegally, and they're doing it with very much the same rhetoric that Democrats do. They're calling it the Dignity Act, and they're framing it as that basically we're committing an injustice. By not giving these people tens of millions of people a path to citizenship, I think this is a perfect example of it. They're, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth at the same time, 
And ultimately, when you look at who's giving money to who, there's very little difference structurally between the two parties. I have a quote here from one of your segments, actually, where you say, this ruling class in this country has deconstructed the nation it was entrusted to govern. And this immigration issue is clearly one of the, that's, that is an illustration of that. Yeah, no, it, it, it totally is. And I, I had actually a talk about this the other night. I think immigration is the most important issue because what we're talking about when we're talking about immigration is the character of the country. And if you want to change its institutions virtually overnight, if you want to change its politics, well, one very Machiavellian way to do that would be to actually change the people that are in that country. And I think ultimately that is the real consequence of immigration. And I think Republicans, what they get out of this is, to be clear, I think a lot of the people that are immigration, mass immigration advocates, they really do believe these things. They, they really do believe the things that they're saying. But on the other hand, structurally, I would say that Republicans, what they get out of this is cheap labor for their donors because their, their donors are labor exploitators. And there's a saying that immigrants do the jobs that Americans don't want to do. That's just not true. That's not true. Don't do them. No, that's not true. They'll do them for the wages that Americans don't want because they're not wages that they can use to raise and start families. But immigrants will because they can be exploited. And I think that's an injustice. So th that's what Republicans get out of it. Cheap labor for their donors, blood for their blood gods. And on the other hand, Democrats get what they view is demographic certainty. That basically the more immigration happens, uh, the more certain their, their one-party rule becomes in the future. And the Republican Party's answer to that is actually to become more, in terms of policy, like the Democratic Party, more in policy and rhetoric. And again, this, this sounds you know crazy, like you're saying that the GOP is actually just trying to be like a fiscally responsible version of the Democratic Party. Yes. Look at their rhetoric. Look at their policies. Consider the fact that the biggest immigration travesty that has ever happened in this country was actually happened under Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. the 1986 uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, th this ties in with wokeness as well, which we'll talk about because you've really been one of the loudest voices calling out wokeness in all our institutions and in the government. But it ties in very well with this great replacement uh, theory. Well, it's not so much of a theory and... Uh, Right. This is one of the things I appreciate most with your work as well, is that you've been calling this out. I mean, obviously, the loudest voice has been Tucker on this, for which we can be um, grateful that he's brought this to the fore. And we have Scott Greer, Darren Beatty as well. Very few people uh, are talking about this because they're so, quote, afraid of being branded as um, racists or white supremacists, but uh, it is a reality, if you can tell us a bit about yeah, how you I view this trend and the future of the country, basically, in terms of demographics, where we're headed. Yeah, and I think that the, the starting point is, is that countries have a right to decide who may enter and on what conditions they may remain, and at what point those people have to leave. That is just a right that every single country on Earth is entitled to. So that's, that's my position there. That's where I start from. But I think the most interesting aspect of the Great Replacement is the fact that the same people who will accuse everyone who you just named of being a conspiracy theorist, of being a bigoted lunatic for even suggesting that such a thing is happening, those same people will celebrate the demographic deconstruction 
of the United States European descended demographic core. Again, you can literally find articles from people who will, on the one hand, denounce Tucker Carlson as a as a conspiracy theorist. You know, uh, imagining all this white genocide stuff is what they'll call it. Uh, and and then like a month later, celebrating data from the census that shows that whites are shrinking as a result, not only of immigration, but as a result also of deaths of despair, basically. Increases in things like suicide and drug overdose. And a lot of that stuff happens in places that are economically devastated as a result of the deliberate policy choices of the ruling class of the United States, closing down factories, sending jobs overseas, turning a blind eye to the, the trafficking of people and drugs into the United States through, through our border, right? That is actually why you're seeing places where you have like lots of whites who are either committing suicide or dying from drug overdose. And the same people that will celebrate that when data is reflected in the census will also say, you're not allowed to notice this. A, a perfect example of this is Charles Blow. He's a, a columnist for the New York Times. And I, I actually am writing an article about the Great Replacement, and I use him because he is a perfect example of this. Literally months apart, uh, that's not happening, and it's good that it is, which is something that Michael Anton has coined the celebration parallax, which I think is a perfect concept for understanding this problem. Yes, it's one of the contradictions and absurdities of their rhetoric, which make absolutely no sense. And they reveal that they are the racists themselves, uh, in essence. But what you termed, you know, when you were on Tucker, you said the deconstruction of the United States. And you see all these characters that you've also talked about or written about, you know, the George Soros and his Open Society Foundations, etc. They are all behind this agenda, behind, you know, this front of left versus right, because as you... As as you've pointed out, you know, the policies are, are being supported on both ends. Can you tell us a bit about how you view these forces and these corporate interests that you've talked about previously? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different interests that come into play, but ultimately it's a view of the nation as an open-air mall, and the people are just interchangeable widgets. And if you don't like the politics of the country or something about the country, then you can just change the widgets. That is basically how these people view immigration for different reasons. There, and th there are people, again, who genuinely don't see anything wrong with this. Well, what's the big deal? You know, th these new people that are coming here en masse, they'll, they'll become just as American as you are in a short period of time. And of course, what they mean by that is that they're going to be eating at McDonald's and shopping at Mall of America, because that is what it means to be an American for a lot of Republican politicians, to be frank. They actually don't even realize that they, they themselves denigrate the salience of citizenship and what it actually means to be a member of a polity. For them, it's just jury duty and being able to take out a loan to buy a car or something. Or like I said, eat fast food. You know, watching from afar, and I've said this several times, you know, in interviews and things, but as someone who really loves your country and who values what the Founding Fathers set out to achieve and the way that they set up the country for future generations, it pains me so much to see this ruling class destroy everything that America stands for and how they are brainwashing this entire generation, and I mean, they started before we know this, that it's been decades in the making, to brainwash the entire population into hating America like them. And we have this ruling class that you expose yourself in, in your work that is truly anti-American and, as you just said, doesn't value what it means to be an American. They want this open border society. They want to change the demographics. They're changing the history.
They're changing the entire political system. They're putting the constitution through the shredder and all of this in the aim of bringing the United States down a peg to a certain level playing field whereby it's easier to insert it in this world government that these forces are trying to install for all of us. And COVID has clearly accelerated all of this, but the precipitation that the U.S. has gone through the last couple of years no, we're, I think that's totally we're very close to their desired goal of bringing America to her knees. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And again, you, you, you'll say this stuff and people will accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist, but I always remember this article in the New York Times a few years ago, I think 2015, and the article was about how the nation state is over and the nation state is a thing of the past. So the objective is obvious. They, they talk about it all the time. These people really do believe in governance by these unaccountable multinational, supranational bodies, right, instead of governance by people like us, people that actually live in, in these countries. That is what they believe and that is what they want. So it's totally true to say that. And I think that COVID has affected what I call the second managerial revolution. So James Burnham, a political theorist who's a big influence on me, wrote a book called The Manager Revolution. And he was describing what he thought was a crisis in capitalism in Western societies. And that basically the Great Depression and two world wars, specifically the Second World War, had ushered in a new era. And that not socialism was replacing capitalism, but some other system that no one had really expected because you know the consensus at that time was that there's a crisis in capitalism and what will replace it is socialism but james burnham among other people james burnham was a former trotskyite at the time that he wrote this book he was still kind of a recovering trotskyite but he, he literally corresponded with trotsky and they debated about this stuff and in this book he describes the the new system and the system is coined managerialism this actually became the basis for george orwell's 1984 the Manager Revolution by James Burnham. Orwell actually wrote an essay, and he, he neatly summarizes Burnham's thesis. But that is what I think, on the one hand, that's the system that we actually have, not a republic, not a democracy. On the other hand, I think COVID has, like you said, acted as a kind of accelerator. And the basic, a basic theme of managerialism is a separation of ownership and control. The most obvious example of this is in corporations, the difference between you know, shareholders and, and actually the people that operate the company. In this case, it applies to the nation. There's a separation between the people that actually, you know, live in the country and, and do things to keep the lights on and the people that actually are in power, right? And there's a disconnect between these two groups. And I think what COVID has done is basically increase the power and control of ruling class. And the hard thing to accept is that a lot of Americans basically willingly surrendered that control over their lives in the name of safety. And we're reckoning with that now. Probably the best example of this, the live example of this, is not in the United States, but in Canada. And you have these truckers that are protesting against the Canadian regime. And so far, it seems to be actually going pretty well for them. So that, that for me, has been a really uh, a sign of optimism. Yes, it's very encouraging to see people stand up and pressure, apply effective pressure on these tyrannical governments. But what you just said, you know, I find 20th century history absolutely fascinating. And I think people have trouble imagining that 
people could have plotted the result, what we're seeing happening today so far back. But if you look at the early 20th century around the Woodrow Wilson administration, and I talked about this in my last call with Richard Pope, you know, the, the premise of this world government at the time implemented or they tried to implement it through the League of Nations, you know, after the First World War, but it failed. And then they came back with another iteration after World War II as the United Nations, as we know. But you've had throughout the 20th century this line and all these policies slowly but surely being implemented to reach this goal, this desired goal of a centralized government. And what you just said that is so alarming is how today and you know, well, 2020, 2021, with what happened with COVID is how people just surrendered. But when you look at the psychological war that has been waged for decades to lull us into this complacency, then it makes sense that we have reached this point in time where there is this divide with sadly quite a large portion of the population that yes, yielded to the immediate pressure and uh, complied with these, I mean, just egregious, egregious breaches of our freedoms and civil liberties so willingly. But the good thing is that with COVID, it was just so big, so grotesque, as was, you know, 1-6, uh, January 6. You have several events, and this is largely thanks to President Trump, who woke up a lot of people ahead of this, quote, fake pandemic that woke up people to the reality that the government isn't actually on our side. They're working against us. And people are waking up. You just mentioned it, the freedom convoys, not just in Canada, but it's spreading, you know, also here in yeah. Europe. Yep. And I'm very confident that this ruling class has overplayed their hand. And another thing that I noticed you mentioned, I think in another Tucker segment, you've been following this very closely, Bill Gates, and a lot of people know now, thanks to the news spreading, that he's the biggest farmland owner in America, but few people yep. know about his seed harvesting. And you've talked about that, and our friend Ren as well discusses these things, but People need to realize that you have these people at the very top of the pyramid that are concerting together to deprive us from any autonomy and independence from them. No, that's exactly right. And I think where I depart from other people on the right wing with this problem is that I, I don't think it's possible to retreat into stuff like localism. I think that localism and at, at its most extreme point, stuff like secessionism, is in many ways just kind of escapism. I, I know that there are really good arguments for these things, and I, I totally sympathize with the idea of like, okay, we can't win, it's not worth trying, the best th thing that we can do is just kind of like carve out some territory and a space for ourselves to, to live and, you know, try to make the best of the time that we have with our families and uh, give them um, the best time that they can in this crazy world. But I think the only way out is through. And so I think that there is no running from people like Bill Gates. I think that the only the only answer is to, to use power wherever and however possible to, to push back on people like Gates because they're, they're not going to stop. They're not going to leave you alone. They're going to continue consolidating power and control 
Gates's case over a lot of things, including uh, food sources. There, there's an article, I think, in CNB, CBC, uh, no, CNBC, about how if you eat French fries from McDonald's, there's a good chance that they're grown on Gates's land. He has a lot more control over important farmland than people realize, and people will downplay it and say, well, he only owns, you know, a, a small portion of, of the total. It's like, well, no, it's significant. Uh, when one person like Gates owns that much land and it, the products that are grown on it are ubiquitous and you have no real oversight over what he does with your food, this is actually a serious problem. And anybody who tells you it's not is just lying to you or simply does not know what time it is. I actually recently wrote an article about another Gates-funded project. It's called uh, Social Emotional Learning. And this is a curriculum that is sold by different organizations. One of the biggest ones is called the Committee for Children, which receives funding indirectly from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And social-emotional learning is, it's a little understood thing, just call it a program, that a lot of parents and parents' right activists are increasingly identifying as a kind of Trojan horse for critical race theory, for radical teachings of gender and sex ideology in schools to children. And the Gates Foundation actually has it as a plank in their educational mission to bring SEL to every single K through 12 school in the country. Like that is part of their actual, their vision of education in the country. And they subsidize this stuff. And Again, SEL is, is little understood, thanks to guys like Chris, Christopher Rufo. CRT is just, everyone like knows what that is. He, he, he's effectively turned that into a meme. Christopher Rufo will, will tweet something and then say, that this is CRT. And it's like, yeah, that, 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 is a great, that is a great way to summarize a complex issue, right? With all these different aspects to it. SEL is kind of similar, except it, it only recently is getting exposed. But it, it is coming to a school near you and it is being subsidized by some of the worst people, not in the country, in the world. So, again, I don't think there's any running away from this. I think the, the answer to stuff like SEL, and I think this is a more accessible example than how do you deal with Bill Gates consolidating control over seed patents, right? How do you, well, okay, how do you push back on the push to push SEL in schools? Well, you, you win school board elections. You get these teachers fired, and you prosecute some of them for child abuse. So I think this is a concrete example of what we actually can do on a very local level that has a national importance. I completely share your line of thinking, and another source of encouragement are these parents that are voicing their outrage at this abuse, because it is abuse, as you just said, it's child abuse. And uh, you mentioned Christopher Rufo and the work that you're doing to expose, what is it, SEL? Social Emotional Learning, S-E-L. S-E-L. So CRT, S-E-L, we need people that expose this. You know, the grooming of children is just yeah. out of control. Also, the sexualization, the grooming in terms of sexualization yeah. is just horrendous. And um, I, again, share your line of thinking in terms of we cannot back down. We cannot give an inch. And I agree with you. Yeah. The people on the right who are kind of condoning or how would you say? Flirting. 
yeah with, even flirting yeah. with with these things i mean i i it's we need to be radical when it comes to uh protecting our children and future generations and the work ahead of us it's not only stopping what's currently going on but reversing decades of indoctrination because this has been going on for for decades they they captured one of their main fronts has been the education system they captured it completely in the the mid 20th century and ever since they haven't let go of it and they're using it to as i said a bit earlier you know to indoctrinate and brainwash children into becoming anti-american into into not even knowing what the constitution stands for into not even knowing what their rights are yeah. they've removed all like the civic education and replaced it with trash basically yes yeah the trash is accurate and i think the important the really significant thing about stuff like sel which is superficially it's just an approach to teaching it's just a set of tools that we use to teach children to be better people right but the real consequence of stuff like sel is that it actually shifts the roles and responsibilities of raising a children away from the parents and on to educators and administrators who are first in sel I'm working on a story about this. I I'm trying to win the trust of this family so that they'll let me tell their story, but they they're dealing with this where basically they had their child was I guess you could say groomed into becoming transgender. And the teachers and ed, uh, administrators at, at a particular school hid this from the family for years. And they noticed something was off with their kid, just acting very strange, kind of withdrew from family life. but they never could have anticipated this that basically their school had created an entire different world for their child where they had a different name and a different identity when they got dropped off at school and they only picked up on it the big red flag for them apart from all the other strange behavior and the change of clothes and hair and stuff like that the the, the red flag for them was when they noticed that a faculty member had an unusually intimate rapport with their child the kind of thing that a parent has with their kid finishing each other's sentences being able to read body language instead of using verbal communication stuff like that you know stuff that you, the kind of stuff that you develop with your kids well the family noticed that that relationship was gone for them but it had been, it now existed between their kid and this you know basically like a counselor and, and that was for them the the moment where they realized you know there's something seriously wrong here and they ultimately figured it out um that's all I'll say for now but this is this is what SEL does to your kids this is what CRT and and all this stuff does to your kids it makes it turns children against their parents and it and it makes the the real arbiters of right and wrong not your parents who are supposed to inculcate those values in you but the the people who are versed in in the mystical teachings of critical race and and gender ideology and that is extremely dangerous i mean the story you just shared is just so disturbing there are there are no words but it's spreading it's so widespread now these sex changes operations you know for minors even in texas i think you wrote about that as well oh yeah texas is texas is one of the worst places that i've encountered for this problem and i stress texas because if it can happen in texas it can happen anywhere I I reported a story that at the time it was just for some odd reason it was just like a local news thing that these two parents who had attended school board meetings at the same school district who were critical of the school board for different reasons they ended up getting arrested on the same evening simultaneously they lived in different houses 
But same evening, around the same time, they got a knock on their door, and it was the sheriff's department come to arrest them at the behest of the school district, because the school district has its own police department. And so that school district coordinated with the local sheriff to execute a warrant and arrest these parents and put them in jail overnight in a Texas county jail at a time where that jail was not holding anyone for basically low-level offenses because of COVID. I, I have a parent who went into the jail and heard the guy at the front desk say, we're not holding people for these kinds of offenses. Why are they here? And they still put them in jail overnight. And the only logical conclusion is that it was to send a message to these parents who had been identified as community leaders in, in the parents' rights movement. This is happening in Texas. It can happen anywhere. You know, Pedro, just listening to you speak about this and just seeing this trend of the entire national security apparatus having been weaponized against American citizens who have done nothing wrong purely as a way to deter political dissidents. And by political dissidents, we mean people who oppose this encroachment and, and these blatant abuses by the government on the population. I mean, we are right to refer to the government of the United States as a regime because they have completely subverted the different branches of government in order to target their own citizens, like yeah. any banana republic or third world country. Yep, that's right. There's a story recently, I think in the last day or so, about how the CIA, big shock, right? The mm -hmm. CIA has been illegally spying on millions of people, and that is obviously not a surprise at all. No. There were, I did see some comments. I wish that this was not true, but I saw some comments that were to the effect of, well, that's illegal, so this story can't be true. The CIA wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, but apart from those comments, what's most shocking is the fact that it seems like a lot of people don't care. They just accept that this is life now. Yes. That the been... NSA... And the it, CIA can just do this. Go it's ahead, been so normalized, you know, the last yeah. 20 years. The last 20 years after, you know, the tragedy of 9-11, the growth of the national security state has just been completely normalized. Yep. And, um, That's exactly right all these different justifications that are being used in order yeah. to justify this expansion. You know, you mentioned as well, I have another quote of yours, which I thought was really good too. You said that the truth is that the specter of white supremacy is used to fuel the growth of a corrupt political order. And yeah. it's so precisely said, you know, you see the rhetoric that is coming out of DHS, of the DOD, the DOJ, and the different intelligence agencies, they're all using, as you said, the specter of white supremacy, of right-wing extremism, etc. They've even coined a term, extremist, page, extremism, patriotism. Yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah, Derek B reported on that. That's yeah, yeah. A, a new category of patriotism. <laughs> yeah, a new category of extremist patriotism. Absolutely. Yeah. Darren um, wrote a, a revolver expose on this, mm -hmm. you know, based yeah. on this DARPA document, which also has the different signs of extremism, which includes, you know, a Pepe frog. Right, which, I yeah. mean, I love the Pepe frog. I think <laughs> it's so cool. So uh, according to them, uh, you know, if we love the Pepe frog, we're, we're extremists. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we're extremists because <laughs> we question the legitimacy of the 2020 election, which, I mean, is so obvious, was completely stolen. Yes. Um, You're not allowed to. Well, you, that's, the, that's the main thing, right, is... Even if you – so let's say you're someone who truly believes in democratic norms and liberal institutions. Even if you don't think it was stolen, you should be open to the inquiry. But the fact that the self-identified keepers and defenders of democracy and liberalism are absolutely against 
any kind of good faith inquiry into the election, regardless of whether or not they think that it was stolen, the fact that they're so opposed to that tells you this is not we're not actually living in a democracy anymore. And we haven't for a long time. And that's just a fact of life. Yeah, well, how handy was 1-6? Because it had the reverse effect of the protest, you know, in the right. sense that it stopped the uh, electors from sending it back for review. Yeah, it, cer- yeah, yeah. it certainly undermined the push to kind of investigate fraud and, yeah. and to see, you know, and to, to do, because again, I think Tucker Carlson has framed this really well, where the point of this should be, If we want people to retain faith that the political system works, then we should do this. We should have this inquiry. Because if we don't, for the people that think that something was wrong, it will only for them be a confirmation. And that breeds a kind of cynicism which can become dangerous in the long run. And by dangerous, we really just mean that it destabilizes the political system. And some people might argue that, like, well, that's actually needed at this point because the system no longer really serves anything good. But... In either case, whether you think that that's good or bad, that's actually what's happening, I think, in in the long term, precisely because the people who really just want to know, like, are elections actually free and fair? They're being demonized. They're being treated as terrorists. You've got DHS saying that basically this kind of talk is a threat to national security. In other words, free speech is a threat. <laughs> the First Amendment is now a threat to national security. And like you said, And like I've talked about, all of this stuff, uh, I mean, I, I think the, I, this might be offensive to some people, but I basically think the Constitution's a dead letter, effectively a dead letter. The, the, the federal government does whatever it wants. Uh, mm-hmm. But at any rate, all of this just hilariously illegal stuff that our government does is justified on the basis of, like, like we've been talking about, right-wing extremism. Well, it's fine that uh, all, all of this illegal stuff happens because there are racists out there. <laughs> and, and that's why we have to do these things. But I think this is the intended goal of having this divide, of having this group they can castigate and label as extremists that question, you know, what the government is doing and everything, because it justifies further a crackdown. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think you, you need to have that kind of a threat. And I think the reason it's so disorienting for a lot of people that that mean well, but they just can't seem to wrap their minds around what's happening, is that you're right to feel confused about this, because most nations will identify some kind of an external threat around which to unify the people, right? Um, so, like Carthage, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. Some, some external foe that is kind of alien to us and provides a basis for unity, despite the fact that we all, we all disagree on, on things. Uh, we have this common enemy on the outside that wants to hurt all of us. So right. that, that becomes the basis for collective agreement and collective action. The right. problem today is that there, the external enemy is now actually half the country within the United States. And you, you can hear the way that people talk about this enemy. A perfect example of this is AOC who refers to red states not as red states, but as oppressed states that need to be, quote, liberated. It's the same way that neoconservatives talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, but they're talking about half the country. Yeah, I was going to say the first playbook ran out, and so now this is a new playbook that they're using to further justify this expansion, because I don't think that, generally speaking, the population would have been up for an external foe. As you, as you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, we're, we're, the Americans are exhausted with foreign wars. Uh, yeah. they, they don't like to know that we're, on the one hand, losing men and women 
to these conflicts that no one can justify anymore. And on the other hand, the United States government is in fact guilty of all these terrible things that, that have happened to civilians over there. Perfect example of this is the, the drone strike in Afghanistan that Mark Milley called a righteous strike before the dust had even settled, and it turns out that they killed 10 civilians. They basically wiped out an entire family. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff does not sit well with any decent American. It hurts our honor. So you're right. There, there is no appetite for an external enemy, which is why I think they've had to cultivate this internal enemy that it's internal because, again, we all live here. But the way that they talk about us is we're alien. I mean, they even use the term Taliban to refer to some Americans. My first article for Revolver was actually around this and how appalling it was that Trump supporters and basically half of the American population was being slandered this way. But I think both playbooks have been running in parallel. Patriots have always been the target. You can go as far back as even the 19th century, but if we stay closer, you know, the first America, first movement before the Second World War and uh, more recently everything that's been going on like up to today with the 1-6 political prisoners and, and Trump supporters is just the federal government has slowly expanded and I think they've been monitoring Americans for years trying to find more and more ways to monitor Americans that would potentially pose a threat to or try to impede this expansion. Yeah. No, totally true. I, I don't know if you have seen this movie, but it's called Enemy of the State. Are you familiar with it? No, I don't I don't think I've seen it. You should watch it. You'd really like it. It came out actually in 98, so just a few years before before 9/11, and it's with Will Smith and Gene Hackman. And I'll try not to have any plot spoilers, <laughs> but basically, because I think you'd actually really enjoy it. But basically, it's a it, it other people describe it as programmatic, like it was kind of preparing the public for this stuff. Uh-huh. But in this movie is the modern day national security state. And Will Smith's character is basically, he becomes, he becomes a victim of it. And like I said, if you, when you go and watch it, you'll see exactly what I mean. Because everything that happens in that movie did not officially, I mean, it was happening, but it wasn't official, right? It was still illegal, technically, and, and it was happening more or less without the, the widespread public knowledge that we have of like NSA and CIA spying on Americans now. So in this movie, all of that stuff is happening. It's played out in detail. There's even legislation in the background of the movie that resembles the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a part of the movie. And when you go back and watch it, you're struck by two things. One, were they warning us or were they kind of preparing us for what was coming? And on the other hand, you'll notice that the bad guys are conservatives, like in, like in every dystopian movie, right? The, the bad guys are talking about liberal hysteria over mass surveillance of the public. And I mean, and you can make an argument that neoconservatives were actually instrumental, and they were in both our foreign wars and the, the growth of the national security apparatus. But it's just really funny because today, the people that want more surveillance, the people that want more spying and more invasion of privacy, are not conservatives. It's, it's liberals. It's the left. But anyways, I, I think you'd, you'd really enjoy Enemy of the State, and it, it, it's very relevant right now. I think, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about predictive programming and how, you know, Hollywood and the entertainment industry and media at large have been used for mass psychological operations. That could be also an interesting topic. But listen, uh, Pedro, I knew we were going to get along really well even before we did our first call. And uh, there's one thing I wanted to end the call with because I agree with you. It's very important for listeners and just in general that 
the main message here is we know that all of this stuff is happening. It's appalling and this is not the world we want to live in. But what can we do? And I think you've taken the absolute right stance. We have to call them out, stand up. We cannot give in one iota to these people and we need to reverse everything they've done and we need to reclaim all these institutions, clean them up, some of them just get rid of them, restart something else instead. But we have a duty now. If we know what's up, we know what's been happening, we cannot just sit by and watch as they run everything that is good to the ground. Yeah, everyone has a different skill, right? Everyone has a different gift. Mine is writing and telling these stories. But the thing that every single person can do is just choose not to be quiet. And I don't care how corny that sounds, uh, like a, a high school movie happy ending, but it's totally true. It's true. Every, every yeah. person can just choose not to be quiet, and that, that's actually a lot harder than it sounds in practice uh, people will find. Because you're going against the grain often, and not just against the grain, this abstract thing. It's often the case that you're going against your peers, your family and friends, who might actually agree with you. They just don't know it because they've never... They've never been confronted with someone who, you know, turns around and dissents. And so I think that's the one thing that everyone can do that is actually critically important is just choose not to be silent. But it's very encouraging to see that uh, more and more people are, are gaining this fortitude. And, you know, there's the saying that hard times make brave men. And even though the nature of this war is very different to what we've been accustomed to or what we have in our, you know, collective consciousness of what war is supposed to be like, this is really one of the biggest, gravest wars we're in, and uh, it, it's making people toughen up. So I'm encouraged, and I'm very optimistic, even though these times are very difficult, even though we're probably heading in, in darker months ahead with whatever else they've prepared post-quote pandemic, fake pandemic, that isn't really sticking right now. But uh, in the end, we will prevail. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm optimistic. I, I, I think that as dark uh, and as gloomy as the, as the immediate future is, I think that we win in the long run. Well, it's also thanks to, to people like you. So I really Thank enjoy, you. well, I really admire and enjoy your work. So I'll still be watching and listen. These calls are a bit shorter than the usual podcast format, but it means that I can have a repeat guest and I'd love for you to come back on. I'd be so happy to join you and I will be sure to get you on my podcast so that we can have a long talk, maybe about Hollywood and how it's brainwashed us. Absolutely. And then just, I just thought of something. We should do a podcast with Ren as well. The three of us. That could be fun. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I think that he, he's, he's so well-spoken. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, he's terrific and he does great work. And uh, I think uh, the three of us uh, share many uh, interests. Agreed. We'll have to set that up. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thanks for taking the time and I'll speak to you soon, Pedro. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.